You're listening to The Common Faith Podcast. The topic is always Christianity and the things we should believe in common. Welcome to the program. I am thrilled that you've chosen to spend your time with me today. I don't take that lightly. Today's topic is common faith. So what does that mean, common faith? What is a common faith? What does it mean when something is common? Why don't we start there? What does that mean when we say, uh, when we use that word common, what do we mean by that? Well, to me, when I say that we have something in common, it means that there's something identical is being shared by multiple people. In a personal way, if I say that you and I have something in common, that means that you and I share something that is identical. So say, for instance, I have a friend and then I find out that he's also your friend. We could say that what we have in common is we're both friends with, let's say, Robert. So we have Robert in common, something that's identical that is shared by multiple people. That's what I think of when I think of something that's common. We use that term in sense, like when people disagree, it's if they're reasonable people, they're going to say, well, let's see if we can find some common ground. Let's see if we can find something we agree on. Let's see if there's something that's identical in the way that we think or believe. And that's what we mean by common ground. So now when we bring this into the world of faith, what we're looking for is we're looking for beliefs that are identical that are being held by multiple people. So if I want to find out if I have a common faith with you, we're going to examine our beliefs and we're going to figure out what do you and I believe in that's identical. So that's what we mean by common faith. And, and it's not just an idea in our culture. It's something that it's found in the Bible. We can actually find this word combination, common faith, in the book of Titus. And Paul is writing to this man named Titus, and he uses this expression in the first chapter, in the fourth verse. He says, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. My true son in our common faith. Our identical belief system. So he's acknowledging that he and Titus have a belief system or systems of belief, components of a system of belief that are identical. To the point that at a whole level, he's saying that our faith as a whole is common between us. We also see it in another spot in the book of Jude. He doesn't use the word faith there. He uses the word salvation. And I'll read the quote from the book of Jude. It says, um, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. We can see here he doesn't say common faith, but we can see he's talking about that because he's connecting those two ideas. He says, I felt like I needed to write to you about our common salvation because I feel it necessary to appeal to you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all time handed down to the saints. And so there's an interesting idea. 
Jude believed that there was a system of faith that was handed down to them, which was a once for all time thing. Like this was the real deal. This is what the truth is. This is what we should believe in. There weren't multiple truths. There weren't multiple beliefs. There was one. There was one system, one collection of teachings, one collection of beliefs that was true and that once and for all time, it was handed down to the saints and it was something that should be guarded. And if you read the book of Jude, you'll see that the problem is that right off the bat, from the very beginning of Christianity, people began to pervert this faith. Now, we can assume that what happened was Jesus, through his teaching, delivered this faith system to them. We only have like a small, slim picture into the things that Jesus taught them. I'm one of these people that likes to read the Gospels over and over and over and over and over again. And when you think about it, there really isn't that much in there. We've actually charted this out at our church's Bible study, and I think we got something like, I don't know, if you look at those, the big poster board size paper, like what you can get, you'll see them in elementary school classrooms and the teachers are teaching the ABCs and the one, two, threes on them. We probably got all of the teachings, miracles, stories of the four gospels all written down on six of those things. And it covers a wall in our church where we study. That's not a lot for a ministry that was three years long. Like if we were just to look at the amount of preaching that is done in three years, like take your typical pastor or teacher, the work that they do in three years, if they're speaking once a week, which oftentimes these ministers are speaking multiple times a week, but let's just say they were speaking once a week. And if we were to write that all down and compile it, you'd have a substantial book. I mean, you'd have a lot of words. We don't have that much on Jesus. We don't. I'm led to believe that there is a lot more going on there. These are like the highlights that we're getting. These are like the major points. But I got to believe that there's a lot of other stuff that's going on there. Now, if the Lord felt it was necessary for us to know that stuff, it would have been in the scriptures. But I believe there's a lot of stuff that was just handed down. And we can see it reinforced in the epistles. When you look at Paul's teachings, he's bringing forth a lot of stuff that we didn't necessarily see directly taught by Jesus. But the other apostles didn't disagree with the things that he was writing. They were in agreement that this was all part of the common faith. And Paul even references this idea that after his conversion to Christianity, before he even went up to see the apostles in Jerusalem, there was a, a tremendous amount of time that went by as he basically learned the faith. And then eventually he went up and presented himself uh, to the apostles. Let's accept this idea that there's a lot going on, but it's all part of this thing we're calling a common faith. That there is a true Christianity that in the beginning there was one body of beliefs and there wasn't very much that diverted from that. But right off the bat, people began to bring in other ideas and began to pervert things. Let's ask ourselves this question. Here we are 2,000 years later, and do Christians share a common faith? I mean, we can see that by the lack of discernible disagreement, 
by the early church. And when I be, say early, I mean really early. I'm talking about in the life of the apostles. And as things go forward, we see that there's plenty of debate going on among the early church fathers. I get that. All right. I acknowledge that. But among the apostles, it seems that the biggest thing that they were confounded about was whether or not this new faith, this common faith, included the Gentiles. We see a disagreement between Paul and Peter early on, that's recorded in the book of Acts, over whether or not Gentiles had to follow the law of Moses. This is a thing that is addressed throughout Paul's epistles, and I won't get into that. But other than that thing, which was evolving, which was, by the way, it was a revelation, because these Jewish men, when they received this faith, they were looking for the coming Messiah. And Jesus, the Messiah, came. There was no revelation. I mean, first of all, the revelation that Messiah was not going to throw off the Romans and reestablish the Davidic kingdom immediately, that was a mind blower. I mean, that's what they had in their heads. They're waiting for Messiah to come. They're living under Roman oppression. They're not a free nation. They haven't been for a very long time. And so they're looking forward to the coming of Messiah, and Messiah is going to reestablish the kingdom of David, and they're going to be free people again, free to live for God. So the idea that Messiah was not coming to do that, but Messiah was coming to die for the sins of the nation. It wasn't the bondage of Rome that he wanted to throw off. It was the bondage of sin. That was the bigger enemy. That's what Jesus had his eyes on. He had his eyes on that prize. And so that right there, that was a big enough deal that had to work their way around that one. They had to overcome that. He's not going to restore the kingdom of David. In fact, he revealed to them that he was going to suffer and die. That blew him away. And Peter was like, no, this should never be. That was a big enough head tweak for them. The idea that Messiah did not come to reestablish the kingdom, but to set people free from sin, which ironically began a different kind of kingdom in the spirit. Do Christians share a common faith? Well, I can tell you that one of the estimates that I read recently is that we have over 10,000 denominations in the world. Now, there are some people that say we could possibly have as many as 30,000. But that's if you count like smaller subsets of larger denominations, because these large denominations tend to split up into even smaller groups within them, subsets. So we have over 10,000 ostensibly different belief systems. We hope at the core of all those is faith in Jesus Christ. But there's still a lot of stuff going on there that they don't have in common with each other. If all these denominations held the same beliefs, then they wouldn't be a denomination. By virtue of the definition of the word denomination, like we talk about money, fives are different than tens or different than twenties and fifties and hundreds. The whole idea of a denomination is that you have beliefs that you hold dear that are distinct from other groups. Let's for a second, let's just talk about secularized Christians. Just even that term might blow some people away. What do you mean a secularized Christian? Well, if we consider secularized Christians, I mean, they represent like a whole nother set of beliefs, or perhaps we could call them non-beliefs because they're secularized Christians. And the best way I can describe what it means to be a secularized Christian is to first start with Jews. I remember the first time that I came in contact with somebody who was Jewish, but who was an atheist, 
that kind of blew my brain. I didn't get that. How can you be Jewish, but you don't believe in God? Because my idea, my concept was to be Jewish is to be a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're not just of the bloodline, you're of the faith line. And there are all sorts of Jews who are atheists and all sorts of Jews who are into other religions. They are Jewish by birth, but they more adhere to like Eastern religions, things like that. But they still consider themselves Jewish. It's a cultural thing. And so they're secularized Jews. So we have secularized Christians. And I know that because I used to be one of them. My mother was a minister and I grew up in church to some degree. I spent a lot of time fighting her over having to go to Sunday school and participate. I grew up around church circles and my mother was a minister. In my mind, even though I didn't really have any kind of a relationship with God, and I, I certainly didn't live like a Christian. In fact, I found Christians who, who were serious about their faith, I found them offensive. They were weirdos. In my mind, I was like, you just need to settle down, people. Like, you know, you're getting a little too excited about God here. This is a problem. And I could feel like in my spirit being like offended by their joy and their exuberance and all this stuff because I didn't have any of that and I didn't understand it. I was offended like they were better Christian than I was because I did see myself as a Christian, not because I necessarily served God or loved God in any way, but because I was related. My mother was a minister. That's going to count for something. I had all these ideas. So I would say I was a good example of what it means to be a secularized Christian. It was cultural for me. I mean, I didn't have a problem going to church. I didn't like to. But, you know, certainly I wouldn't have a problem going into a church for a, a wedding or for an Easter service or Christmas. I mean, I would do that if it would make somebody happy. I would, I would walk through the door. The roof might fall in on me. At least I'd tell myself that, but I would go. So, yeah, if we think about not only are there over 10,000 different varieties of believing Christians. Now let's throw in all the secularized Christians, those people who culturally identify to some degree with Christianity, because like with myself, family relationships, where they come from, people who never go to church, but, you know, say for instance, they were raised in a particular denomination. And now when their children are of age, they get baptized or they get confirmed or whatever the tradition is of that particular sect. They do that, even though they themselves have no, they have no belief. They don't really take it seriously. It's just a cultural thing. It's a coming of age thing, like a Jewish bar mitzvah, same kind of a deal. If we include all those people, then how many different belief systems do we have? Or as I tried to be funny, say with the secularized Christians, we could call those beliefs non-beliefs because a secularized Christian doesn't necessarily believe that Christianity is a real thing in terms of being the truth. It's a nice faith system. If it makes you feel good, you know, if you find comfort in that, good for you, you know, that kind of thing. But it certainly isn't the truth. It's not something we should like seriously believe don't really believe that Jesus was born of a virgin or that he was resurrected. I mean, those are just stories. So my question is, how did this happen? How did we go from a common faith? How did we go from the one that is Jesus Christ, the head of the church? How did we go from a common faith that he's delivered to his followers? 
and then they've delivered to theirs and then in just 2000 years end up with 10,000 different versions of it. How did that happen? Well, if you believe in malevolence, if you believe in the idea that there is actually things as angels and that there is a character who we know as the adversary, Satan or the Satan, it would make sense that if he could not stop the mission of the Messiah to offer himself as a sacrifice for the people, then he can resort to perverting that and perverting beliefs about it. Think of it like this. You can have an insurance plan that lets you go see your doctor, but if you can't actually book an appointment to get in to see a doctor, then it's like you don't even have a doctor. doesn't matter that you have a doctor and it can be paid for you, that you got insurance and it's all good to go. If you, can't, if you literally cannot schedule an appointment to get in to see her or him, it's as if you didn't have a doctor. What's the difference? So in the same way, there may be this truth out there. There may be this common faith, but if it's so obscured in all of this variety of doctrine and all these different denominations, a thinking person is left to ask themselves the question, who's right? Is anybody right? And how do I sort this out? And is it worth sorting out? So how did this happen? If there is a devil, and I believe there is, then I can totally see that being the strategy. You can't go back in time and stop the sacrifice from happening, but you can keep people from accessing it. And so I think this is part of that. I think of all this confusion over Christian beliefs is just a part of preventing people from accessing salvation in Christ. I do. So the question is, how should we respond to this? I mean, some people have really strong feelings about denominationalism. It's a bad thing, and we should all believe the same and all this. They get kind of fired up. They won't go through the door of like a denominational church. They won't go into a Catholic church or a Baptist church or a congregational church. Those are denominations. Denominations are wrong. Well, when you take that tact, you essentially also become a new denomination. We could call you the anti-denominationalists. You've just now created another belief system, the belief that you should not associate with a denomination. So you can't win. There's no way to get away from denominationalism. If you reject denominationalism, then you are a denomination unto yourself. And regardless, and I'm trying to be a little silly here, but regardless, the question is, what does God want? And all of this, and all this craziness, and all of the, the fractures and divisions and the 10K plus versions of the truth, because that's the way I look at it, I like to think that denominations care greatly about truth. And they think that there's 10,000 different versions of it. And some of it may just be minor points, but still, this isn't like Heinz ketchup where there's 57 tomato varieties in every jar. We've got 10,000 varieties in our jar. So what does God want? There's a scripture from Philippians that was penned by Paul. And he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We can use the term single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. That Paul, writing under the, the unction of the Holy Spirit, the heart of God is revealed in this. 
He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. I think Holy Spirit would have us have a common faith. I think that's what he wants. The problem is, how do we get there? Can we even get there at this point? If you got 10,000 different versions of Christianity, I mean, how can you be of the same mind? If I'm sitting down and I'm having polite conversation with a a Catholic and a a Southern Baptist and let's say a, a Northeast Congregationalist, how much are we going to have in common as it concerns our Christianity? What kind of conversations are we going to be able to have? I'm from the Northeast. Northeastern Congregationalists tend to be very socially active. It seems like their focus these days are social issues. How's that going to play out with the Southern Baptist? Why don't we just throw a Pentecostal in there just to spice things up a little bit too? Boy, how's that going to go with the Catholic at that luncheon and the Catholic and their love of tradition and dogma and symbolism and all this sort of stuff? And then you got this Pentecostal. How's that going to roll? Pun intended. I'm trying to play on the holy roller thing. That really wasn't that funny. What can we do about this? Can we roll it back into one faith? I don't see how that's possible. You don't roll it back into one faith. In fact, God has allowed this to happen. You know, God is sovereign. He has allowed belief in Messiah to be split into 10,000 different versions. And the reason I say that is because I believe in the sovereignty of God. Maybe that's one of those things we don't agree on. Maybe that's one of the things that has set up some of these denominations is I believe some things like I believe God is sovereign. Maybe there are other Christians who don't. We can't even start with this conversation. I mentioned earlier that I do believe that there is a malevolent fallen angel that we know is the adversary, Satan. How many Christians don't believe that? That's just a fairy tale. So again, you wouldn't even be able to accept that. How much of this program could you sit there and sit in agreement with just because we're so divided in our beliefs? Do I think we can roll it back into one faith? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think we can do that. But what we can do is we can spend our lives doing our best to find common ground and peaceably through conversation recover those things that are a common faith. And so it's in that spirit that I have started this podcast so that we can have conversation. Of course, that's kind of loaded, isn't it? Because I'm starting a conversation with a podcast, but I'm doing all the talking. So isn't that just a little bit funny? Let's put it this way. I want us to think about some of these things. I want us to think about different issues and are these things that all Christians can agree on? What can we all agree on? And and more than that, not just what can we all agree on, but what should we all agree on? Because there's certainly things that are true that are important to this common faith that some of these denominations reject. And I already mentioned it. If in fact there is this malevolent being, a fallen angel, who is out to make your life miserable, that this isn't just some cartoon fantasy thing that people have cooked up. If there really is this being 
I think it would be important for Christians to be wary of that being and understanding that that being is trying to interfere with their life and their faith. And that that being, as Jesus said, it's come to kill, steal, and destroy. There are things that I think that are important, that they're recoverable, and we should recover. And so that's what I'm going to attempt to do. I'm going to put some things out over a number of episodes here, and I'm just going to pick a topic and put it out there. And I'm going to share my thoughts, and I'm going to pray and trust Holy Spirit that he's going to breathe life into these things and that we are going to be able to find common ground. Thank you so much for listening.